Good morning. Uh, my name is Ilunga. I will be reading our passage of scripture this morning. And that is found in Genesis 13, uh, 1 to 4. That is page 9 of a Pew Bible. And it's going to be on screen as well. Let's read. So I will be reading in English. Then we're going to fly a little bit to back where I'm from. Uh, that's Congo. And I'm going to read in Swahili too. Uh, so let's read in English. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had, uh, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Uh, let's jump a little bit in Swahili here. So if you may have your pubab in Swahili, I don't know. <laughs> so in Swahili, I'm going to read, Mwanzo sura ya kumi na tatu mustari wa kwanza mpaka wa ine. panasema. Abraham akapanda kutoka Misri yeye na mkewe na kila alichokuwa nacho na lutu pamoja naye mpaka kusini. Naye Abraham alikuwa ni tajiri sana kwa mifugo, kwa fedha na kwa dhahabu. Akaendelea kusafiri kutoka kusini mpaka Betheli mahali pale alipokuwapo hema yake kwanza kati ya Betheli na Ai. Napo ndipo palikuwako na madhabao aliyofanya hapo kwanza. Naye Abrahamu akaliti jina la Bwana hapo. This is God's word. Well, thank you, Ilanga. What a beautiful language. Um, I'm going to dismiss uh, both our children, ages four years old, to kindergarten. Uh, Kira is back there, welcoming them to their time uh, this morning, as well as our friends, brothers and sisters who are going to go into the cafe and uh, discuss and receive the sermon uh, in uh, as English as their second language. And, and just a quick note, as Alunga came up and, and read the scripture both in English and in Swahili, I just draw your attention to as our brothers and sisters uh, go to the cafe, we are unified together. They are sitting with an outline of our sermon that a faithful team is is walking with them through, and, and God is really moving in that, uh, that ministry and um, drawing together us as a body. Well, in 2001, the global self-help industry was valued at more than $40 billion. Tony Robbins, you might know, an age-old self-help guru, uh, is, is renowned for his contributions to such an industry. And I just wanted to say a quick word. He's about to have an event here in two weeks in Birmingham. And a VIP ticket to his event entitled Unleash the Power Within is valued at $2,300. We have a lot of voices in our culture telling us what we should do to succeed but we have few voices telling us what we should do when we fail. 
Not when we fail to reach our full potential or arrive at our self-made goals, but when we fail to love others well. And ultimately, when we fail to love and submit to the good God who has adopted us into his family in Jesus Christ. What do you do when you fail, when you sin? If we are honest, we have a natural inclination to run, to run away from God when we fail him. We often want to escape the consequences of our sin, escape the consequences of sinning against our spouses, our children, our friends. We justify ourselves, whether internally or externally. And in some ways, deep down, when we see the ugliness of our hearts, we can wonder, if I face the music of my sin and return to the Lord, Will I be welcomed? Or will I be cast out like I deserve? Is there a way back from failure? In Jesus Christ, there is always a way back. And you may, just as an aside, you may notice that every Sunday to start our services, the refrain is to the weak, to the wounded, to the wayward. Those who are lost and far from home, you are welcome here in the name of the living Jesus. And that is because we believe this. And I don't know about you, I know I often say those words, but when I'm sitting in the congregation, I feel an exhale. I could be welcomed. I am welcomed in Jesus Christ. There's always a way back to God, no matter the severity of our sin. And that's what the Bible calls repentance, the way back. But what does that look like? What does that way back look like? We're going to see that in this story in Genesis 13, 1 to 4. Abram, with his whole family, takes that trip. And so if you are a child or you want to, you're an adult and want to draw a picture, uh, I would encourage you, draw a picture of your family moving across the country with all your stuff, and without cars or trucks or planes or trains, consider all the different things that you would have to pack. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you have welcomed us here in this place. Together, as a family, Lord, you know us, you know our needs this morning, and we pray, Lord, that you would meet us in our need as we bow before you and ask that you would teach us what we don't know, that you would give us what we don't have, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would bring healing where we need to be healed, and that you'd bring conviction where we need conviction, Lord, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Genesis 13, 1 to 4, we see that this journey of repentance, specifically what it looks like, what Abram does and what we are called to do. And on the journey back to God in this road of repentance, we do three things. We grieve the wrong, we bear the baggage, and we call upon the mercy of God. We grieve the wrong. 
In Genesis 13, we're picking up the story of Abram, the father of God's people. Abram had encountered God, received his grace. God had been good to Abram and vowed to be good to him in the future. Even more, he promised to bless the whole world through Abram and his family. He promised to protect him from harm. And then the the famine hits in Canaan. Doubt creeps in, and he runs away to Egypt. Last last week, Benjamin brought us through to the end of chapter 12, where we witnessed Abram's unbelief, his cowardice, his sin. And we saw that Abram's failure was not just this slip-up or this momentary lapse in judgment. It was a royal failure. He essentially gave up his wife to slavery. He traded her life for his. He maintained his safety while she married another man and slept in his house. I mean, imagine a Christian leader coming into Harrisburg and he sends his wife to live in the governor's mansion as the governor's wife for some indefinite amount of time while he lived here in progress nice and safe. That would be appalling, ludicrous. And yet that's kind of what Abram does. Abram gave Sarah up to the wolves. And she wasn't going to be loved there. Rather, she'd probably be used either as a pretty face or something worse. How long was that arrangement going to last? Would Pharaoh really part with one of his wives? Ever? Abram almost lost his marriage entirely which was going to be the union through which God would bring Abram's offspring and the fulfillment of his promises. Abram jeopardized the covenant. He took the future of God's people into his own hands. It was a slap in God's face. And yet before we look down on Abram in his failure, let's consider, have we ever spurned God's goodness to us? God's grace in our lives? in our life choices, in our relationships, in our inner thoughts toward those around us. I would venture to say that we have. I have. But eventually, God had enough of Abram's sin. He was done with it, and he puts an end to it. In verse 17 of chapter 12, we read this, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I, could, so that I took her from, for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that they had. Abraham was kicked to the curb, all because of his own foolishness. Abraham didn't confess of his own volition. He was caught. He was caught in his sin. And it wasn't just Pharaoh who found him out. It was God. God exposed him. God plucked him out of his deceit and sent him out into the desert from luxury to homelessness. But he did so for a reason. God was committed to Abram and his good promises. Abram was standing in the way. So through Pharaoh, God goaded Abram. 
He disciplined Abram in love. God pained Abram that he might wake up, grieve his wrong, and return to the one who loved him. And that's where the road of repentance starts, grieving our wrong. But not all grief is the same. In Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, he says that there are two kinds of sorrow that we can experience as we look at our sin and failure. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We can grieve as the world does when we face our failure, where we grieve the consequences of our sin, the inconvenience our sin causes, the bad feelings we feel, the shame we feel of being caught, the lost opportunities, our failed potential, or we can actually face our sin for what it is, a rejection of God's perfect standard of love, his beautiful standard of love. We can reckon with and grieve the fact that like Abram, we have turned our back on the one who has been so good to us. So what do you do when you face your own sin and failure? When you face the failure to love your spouse, your child, your neighbor. When you face your lust and your anger. Do you deny it? Do you cover it up? Do you run? Godly grief looks our sin in the face with a confidence that the end of the road of repentance is a redemption that leads to, as Paul puts it, a life without regret. We get a window into the kind of grief that Abram had when we look at the whole of Genesis 13, 1-4. In verse 1, we read, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. The Negev literally means the dry. Whether Abram waffled between worldly and godly grief, we know that his grief led to a journey out of Egypt, into the desert, and ultimately back home. But that journey would not be easy, and he had a lot of stuff to carry. On the road of repentance, we grieve the wrong and we bear the baggage. So over the past three years, my wife and I, now my wife and our little girl, have moved four times. Now, I don't say that uh, as woe is me. Um, it's been quite the journey, and we've realized just how good God has been to us in offering us many homes. Uh, so I don't know the last time you moved, but moving can be pretty rough, right? Not very fun. If you have fun moving, I don't... I don't know what that says about you, but I don't understand that. You know, you have a couple months prior that's, that's occupied with just thinking about moving. And then maybe a little bit closer, you start thinking about packing. And then a little bit closer, you actually start to pack. And as moving day approaches, you quickly realize how much more stuff you have than you realized. And then things get packed in all sorts of weird ways. You, you stick random things like a spatula in with your clothes because you just don't want to bother opening up a box again. Yeah, moving has been rough. But then you, you, know, you may move in a day or two, but then you have to unpack, right? Which somehow ends up taking months, and somehow there's always one thing that remains far beyond where it should be. 
Nevertheless, the whole process of moving over these past few years has invited me to take stock of what we have. Literally, all that we possess, visible right in front of us. It reminds us of the people and the relationships in our lives. The places we've been, the things we've done, whether good or bad. Moving has invited us to not just reflect on what we have, but on what we're going to do with it. Well, Genesis 13, chapter, or 13, verse 1, is moving day for Abram. There wasn't any lead time. No perusing of Zillow. No investigating school districts or waiting until interest rates go down. Maybe they never will. Even more, he's got a journey through the desert that would take probably three to four weeks. No moving trucks going 60 miles an hour down the interstate, but rather donkeys, sheep, and cows strutting at a screaming one mile an hour on a good day. I'm sure there were children that made it a whole lot longer. He's got a long way to go and a whole lot of baggage to bear, some of it pleasant and some of it painful. It says Abram took his wife, all that he had, and Lot with him. He leaves Egypt with a family that has had to pay for his cowardice, deceit, and compromise. He's got a vulnerable and broken marriage. Was Sarah bitter and angry at Abram, or was she so broken by the ordeal that she could barely look him in the eye? We can imagine he has a complicated relationship with his nephew, Lot, evidenced by their coming conflict in the next few verses that Benjamin will be walking us through. He also has to walk with the guilt and shame of his own folly, in his own heart, in his own thoughts. I remember uh, a long while ago, a number of years ago, I remember sinning against a longtime friend and a roommate of mine, and he was wounded by my wrong. And I had a decision to make after there was the initial exposure of my sin. Do I stick around? Do I stick it out and endure the tension and his justified frustration and my own shame and his hurt? Do I practice steadfast love? Not to atone for my sin, but to pursue reconciliation. That may take a long time. Was I willing to bear the baggage on the road of repentance? Sometimes we can hardly bear the baggage we carry from our sin. Sometimes we bear baggage not just from our own sin, but from another person's sin. Maybe you don't resonate with Abram. Maybe you resonate with Sarai or Lot. Another person's sin, whether abuse done to us or just foolish decisions by a family member that leave us impoverished in some way. Maybe you're enduring consequences for sin you've done in the distant past, this past month, or yesterday. We don't repent because of sin's consequences, but we do have to bear them. We're forced to. But we do so trusting that God bears them with us and can make all things new. Abram bore the painful baggage, and every step 
in the desert was a choice. A choice to bear that painful consequence of his actions in love for his wife, his family, and ultimately his God. But the baggage Abraham carried wasn't just painful. In chapter 12, we read that Abram had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and of course, as Benjamin said, the latest tech, camels, right? And in verse 2 of chapter 13, it says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and now silver and gold. The word used for very there in verse 2 is the same word that is used to describe the severity of the famine in Bethel back in chapter 12. Abram was loaded. But his wealth was tainted. He had essentially plundered Pharaoh through his deceit. Pharaoh had given him all these things because he had said that Sarai was his sister. But not only does Pharaoh spare Abram's life, which is shocking in and of itself, Pharaoh doesn't take back Abram's wealth. And you might look at Abram's wealth and think, well, that's unfair. Here he did this horrible thing, and he's making out with all this cash. Maybe there's people in your life. Maybe you look out on the world and you see wealthy people and you're like, that's not fair. We often look at wealth or blessing purely through a moral lens. If God blesses someone, somehow God is blessing their lifestyle then they must be doing what they should be doing. And the inverse is also true. If someone is suffering with little, then they must have done something wrong and God must be angry or God is just uh, withholding from them good. The thinking, that thinking is actually the outworking of something called the prosperity gospel, which says, if I obey, then God's going to give me tons of cash and I'm going to be healthy and live a long life. This scene in Abram's story comes against the false gospel of prosperity, which actually is no gospel at all. It's actually, a, it's terribly bad news. Because I've got to do what I've got to do. I've got to do right in order to get God's blessing. It's a heavy burden. And here, Abram is given wealth despite his sin. As he journeys through the desert, his wealth is... is just as much a reminder of his folly as it is of God's favor, though. Abram walks away with his life, not because of his holiness, but because of the grace of God. The blessing and protection Abram receives really has nothing to do with his obedience at all, or lack thereof, but it's grounded in God's goodness and commitment to carrying out his promises. On the road of repentance, we are forced to bear the consequences of our actions, the good, the bad, the ugly. And as we bear the reality of our sin's effects and see the scandal of God's faithfulness to us despite our sin, we are strengthened to persevere on that road of repentance. We are strengthened to run toward the Lord. With Abram through the desert, 
rather than running away from him. And that's what Abram did. Verse 3, it says, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram returns to the place where he had consecrated himself, his family, and all that he had, all that he had to the Lord. That was what was happening just prior to his sojourning in Egypt, his flight to Egypt. He returns to that very altar. And in many ways, we see Abram play out what Jesus in the book of Revelation calls the church in Ephesus to do. In Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 4, Jesus says this to the people in that church, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Abram had abandoned the love that he had at first. Jesus says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is what Abram did. He returned to his first love. He retraced his steps. We may say he returned home. And what does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, when I call my wife's name from another room in our home because I need help, what am I doing? I'm calling for her, her attention, her presence. So to call on the name of God is to call upon God himself, to ask for his attention, his help, to invoke his steadfast love, to ask God to remember the covenant that he has made with us, his mercy, his forgiveness. Abram may well have prayed like David in Psalm 51, verses 1 to 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Maybe you need to pray these words with David this morning. But by calling upon the name of the Lord, Abram was not just asking God for forgiveness. He was consecrating himself again. Consecrating his wealth and his future to the Lord, saying, all I have is yours. In this way, he honors God with the baggage he brought to Bethel, the livestock that carried his gold and silver, his tainted gold and silver, in verse 2, become a sacrifice on the altar in verse 4. Abram is submitting all that he is and all that he has to the Lord. He's resubmitting himself to the covenant God had made with him. And as we look at the rest of Abram's story, we know that God heard Abram's cry. He welcomed his sacrifice. He pardoned him. And very soon, in just a few verses into chapter 13, he reaffirms his covenant with Abram. And we too have assurance that God will listen to us when we cry out for mercy. For Jesus endured the plague of God's wrath on our behalf. He was kicked to the curb, evicted from heaven, thrown out into the desert. He bore the baggage of our sin 
He didn't just surrender his wealth to God, but he climbed up on the altar and gave himself up in love. He can forgive your darkest sin. Heal your deepest wound and restore your wasted years. As you come to him, recognizing your need, he will bear you up as you carry the consequences of your sin and the sin of others. More than that, Jesus can transform the ugliness of your sin, the shame you can't seem to shake, into a beautiful testimony. into a beautiful testimony of God's grace in your life. And I've seen that happen here in our church. I've seen it happen in my own life. But repentance isn't just about grief over our sin and enjoying God's forgiveness. It's surrendering all we have to the Lord. Our wealth, our wounds, our failure, knowing that in his kindness he will use it for his good purposes. Abram did return home when he returned to Bethel, but Bethel and the altar there was less of a home and more of a pit stop. Soon to be a memory foreshadowing what was to come, a a better home, a better land, a better city. Undoubtedly, he bore the grief of his past in Egypt as he continued in his story. Undoubtedly, he had to continue to sift through the complexities of his relationship with Sarah. But he bore them, and he did so in a new way, with hope and humility, knowing that God can repurpose any past. He can use weak, wounded, and wayward men and women, and even more, he delights to do so. There isn't just a way back from failure. There's a way forward from failure. Your failure doesn't have to remain a black spot on your story, but can be transformed into a means of grace, a testimony of God's redemptive story that he's writing, not just in your life, but on the life of the world. Abram's story shows that God delights to use men and women with rocky paths, Brought with sin and failure, turning our shame into beauty. And we don't walk alone on these roads of repentance. We walk with one another in love, bearing one another's burdens, anxieties, scars, on the way to the city where there will be no more tears, no more sin, no more failure, no more deserts. And on that road together, we join with the psalmist in Psalm 116. I love the Lord. We love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. 
Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you have opened up a way back from our sin and failure, that you have opened up the ears of God that he might hear us and forgive us and redeem us and restore us together. And Lord, as we receive your grace, we commit to calling upon your name. Again and again, Lord, we will lift up the cup of salvation together. We will come back to the altar again and again and again. We love you, Lord, for you have inclined your ear to us. Even in our lowly state, you saved us. We're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.